we've been here now for quite some time. I don't know how many months it's had. Probably hasn't been a year yet. I don't even remember exactly when we started, but it's been probably close to a year <laughs> since we started Rowan's. And we're in chapter uh, 12 now, which means we still have four more chapters after this one to get to the end of it. But I'm already starting to wonder and think about where we need to go next. So uh, if you feel the Lord to maybe tugging you or nudging you to give me some help and advice on that, I would certainly welcome it. But we said last week, all the way up to chapter 4, really what we've been seeing is, is Paul laying down a theological basis for, for the whole Christian life. And he said some very, very amazing things, some real eye-opening things, and some things that are very difficult to lay hold of. And, and I would say this, that there are some people who believe they've got a clear and absolute understanding of absolutely everything in Scripture, and if that happens to be you, then I'm worried about you. <laughs> we were talking about this a lot in Sunday school, that there are some things in Scripture that are just as clear as a bell. You can't deny them. You can't have a wrong understanding of them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some things that are a little bit more mysterious, and some of the things we've talked about in the book of Romans here would fall more in that kind of mystery kind of uh, part of our understanding of things. But up through Romans 11, we have probably the, the greatest theological treatise that has ever been written by anybody. It lays the roots for a theological understanding of just about everything. And remember, Paul, you know, he, he anticipates questions coming up from people. He knows what people are going to think when he says particular things. He knows the wrong conclusions they're going to come to sometimes. And he goes out of his way to correct those as much as he possibly can. You know, we've seen him use these rhetorical questions. What then? What then? What are we supposed to do with this now? How are we supposed to understand that? How do we apply that? Now, let me tell you something. If you have struggled with the book of Romans, you have never read the book of Romans. You might have skimmed through it, <laughs> but you haven't really read it, because it goes about as deep as you're going to get deep in just about every aspect of our faith. But in chapter 12, there's really a changing of Paul's approach. He moves on more from the theological to the practical. As this is saying, because all of these things that I've said are already, are, we know that these things are true. What are we going to do with them? In other words, how do we take that theology and apply it in practical ways in the manner in which we live our lives as Christians? That's what Romans chapter 12 verse, or, or, through, through chapter 16 is about. How shall we then live? Because those things are true. What is our life supposed to be like? What is our life supposed to look like? How do we live faithfully in this world and be true to the mission of God through Jesus Christ? How do we do that in real and practical ways? Well, this is what Paul begins addressing in chapter 12. And if one of the first things he's doing is this. Is he's helping people to understand the, the purpose of the church, and not only the purpose of the church, but your purpose in the church. 
As we read last week, he began talking about spiritual gifts, and that is that God has given spiritual gifts to absolutely every member of his body. God has given spiritual gifts to you. And I say gifts here because more than likely, there's more than one. Our dear charismatic brothers have done some good things for us and some not so good. One of the good things is this, is they really emphasize these charismatic gifts. That's what charisma means. It's gift, these spiritual gifts. That's the Greek, the, the New Testament word for what we're talking about here. Charisma. Charismatos. You may be sitting there this morning saying, well, God hasn't gifted me at all. You're wrong. If that's you, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Other people may be sitting here thinking, you know, you know I'm not of much value here. That, you know, look at so-and-so. They do this. They can, they're much more valuable. Let me tell you, that's not the right aspect to have either or picture of thing or picture of reality to have either. One of the reasons Paul is writing this is because there were people in Rome and there were people in Corinth who thought very lofty of themselves and other people thought very lofty of them as well because they had particular spiritual gifts. And they were elevating the importance of certain gifts above others. See, this is one of the errors of the charismatic movement. That's exactly what they're doing today. They are committing the, 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 the error that Paul warns us not to commit. One of the reasons he wrote Romans 12 and Romans tw- uh, and 1 Corinthians 12 was to keep us from making the error that is being made so, so profoundly today by some of our Christian brothers and sisters. There are no superior spiritual gifts. None. And God gives spiritual gifts to absolutely every single member of the body of Christ. Not just to a special group or class of believers. Another thing that I would say that people are wrong at is this, is I'm not a favor of spiritual gift assessment tests. I'm not a fan of them. Because we can say this. We can say that Paul's intention never was to give us this exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. In other words, we can't go through Scripture and all the writings of Paul, and we even even include Peter here because Peter addresses it to some degree in chapter 4 of his first epistle, like we were talking about a little bit this morning. None of those lists are identical to the other lists, which tells you this. Even though there's some overlapping... It was never the intention of Paul, it was never the intention of Peter to give us an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. In other words, these are the spiritual gifts, the only spiritual gifts. So you need to pick which one of those happens to fit you. Let me ask you something. Do you think that singing might be a spiritual gift given to some people? 
I don't doubt for a minute he's given it to Lindsay. But you know what? He hadn't given it to Daddy. Singing is not mentioned as a spiritual gift in Scripture, period. But is that important to worship? Is singing people that can, can sing really well, that sometimes do they help you and I worship in a way that we would not be able to do it otherwise? So I just want to caution everybody about coming to the conclusion that we've got this list of spiritual gifts, and now what we need to do is pick the ones that apply to us and have the idea that they're not others. I also want to challenge you with the idea that sometimes we think that God gives us one spiritual gift, period. I've got one. Maybe there's one that he's gifted, an area that he's gifted you in a way that he hasn't lots of other people to a much greater degree. But let me tell you, he's probably having a variety of spiritual gifts. Another couple of cautions I'm going to give to you. One is this, is that is very often we think the things we like to do are the things we're gifted to do. Sometimes that's true, and sometimes, I'll be honest with you, it's not. You are the worst person to determine what your own spiritual gifts are. Because you have a tendency to pick things that you like. doesn't necessarily mean you're good at doing it, you just like it. You need to listen to what other people say. And like I said last week, if you're a member here, if you're part of this body, God is gifting you, not for your own good, but for the good of everybody else. What about, do you think there's certain people that are encouragers to degree that, are all Christians called to, to do these things? Are all Christians called to encourage other Christians? Yeah, but do you think it's possible that God has given a certain people a higher degree of the giftedness of encouragement? Do you know encouragement is not one of the things that's listed in one of those lists of spiritual gifts? So be careful about going through Scripture and saying, these are what they are and I've got to find me in there somewhere. And becoming disillusioned and, and, and whatever, because I don't see myself there anywhere. But the body of Christ works the very best when everyone is expressing their spiritual gifts to the fullest. Let me say, some of these things we're called, all, all of us are called to do. Who, and there's a special gift of service. Does that mean that we never have to serve? The only certain people have to serve? The rest of us are supposed to sit around and just let them serve us? No. You need to understand, we're talking about areas in which certain people are giving a greater degree of certain things. It's not that the rest of us don't have it at all. Does that make sense? You want to find a perfect church? You find the one where every member there is expressing to the fullest the gifts that God has given to them, to the benefit of the body of Christ. That'll be it.
Okay, there were just some things I wanted to say that I didn't get to last week. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to, to, to one another in honor, uh, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never taking your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in the, so doing you will, hear, burn, or you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not, be over, not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're not going to get to all of that. So don't. Uh, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, you know, if you know anything about Greek, or you've heard, you've sat in Bible studies where people have talked about Passages that have love in them, that, that they're different words in Greek for love. Okay? Paul actually uses two different ones in these verses that we read here. Not the same thing. In verse 9, the love there is this agape love, which the best way of understanding is Christ-like love. In other words... Loving like Christ loves us. Uh, it's, it's an ancient Greek word that goes way beyond the church. Some people think that this word was kind of invented you know, in the Greek language when the church came along because this Christian love, it was before that. But it took on special meaning as the church in the New Testament took root and began to grow. Where there's a sense in which, when we read in scriptures, very often what we're talking about is the love between believers, agape love, uh, and the love that God loves us with, the love that we love Him with. He gives us a number of different uh, attributes uh, here in these verses, but I would just want to say this this morning, that love is the preeminent to all of them. In other words, he talks about love before he talks about anything else. And that's just not because he's given us a list now of virtues. What you need to understand is this, is love is the preeminent virtue. And all of these things, in essence, flow forth from love. In other words, it's the basis for these other virtues we're going to talk about. It's preeminent to all. It's presupposed in regard to all of them, all the other ones. 
Remember, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, but now abide faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. That even faith, things like faith and hope, come on the shirt tail of love. It leads the way. And all these other things follow. We talk about this, and what we're talking about here is Christians loving each other as brothers and sisters, as the body of Christ. Uh, Jesus said this to his disciples uh, in that upper room, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our love for one another is perhaps the greatest testimony to the world around us of who we are. I would imagine there are a lot of people in the world, and I was in that, in that place at one time, when I looked upon Christians, love is not what I saw. <laughs> what I saw was judgmentalism and, you know, condemnation. <laughs> You know, this, that, and the other. I didn't see, you know, when I looked upon the church, I didn't see it as a group of people who really loved each other a lot. I saw it as a group of people who just saw a lot of wrong with everybody else, kind of. And uh, you may not agree with that. It may not be what your experience was or has been. But, uh, but as, as we love one another, as Christ would have us love one another, in the manner and in the way that he would have us do that, it will make us stand out in this world as a sore thumb, distinct from everything else, distinct from everybody else, abrasive to some people. But it is the thing that will attract people to Christ like nothing else will because they will not find it anywhere else. It doesn't exist anywhere else. Sadly, years ago, Lori and I were at a protest in Ocala years and years ago. And there were two groups gathered there. One was a Christian group. The other was a, was a group of unbelievers. Uh, and, and Lori and I were walking along, and we were praying, and we came across these two ladies that were arguing with one another. And let me tell you something, you couldn't tell a whit of difference between the two of them. One of them was a believer, the other one wasn't. But there was no distinction in their manner of their behavior at all. And what you would have concluded is, she may be claiming to be a believer, but based upon what she's doing, I'm not too sure about that. See, we don't get the world's attention when we do what the world expects us to. When we don't do what the world expects us to, that's when we get its attention. When we're not like everybody else, it takes notice of it. Love is not just an element of a list of virtues that we're called to have. It is the central one from which everything else flows forth.
It's the highest calling that God could put upon anybody. We naturally are lovers of ourself above and beyond everything else. That is the battle that we have to continue to fight. To not let that lie remain in the forefront of our mind. Our call is this one, and that is to love one another as Christ loves us. And how would Paul describe that love as being from what he's written in the book of Romans? Well, one of those is it's a gracious love. It's not love that people deserve, not people that people not love that people have earned. It's the love God loves us with. That same verse that Paul tells us that we are to love so highly, he also tells us that there's some other things that we're supposed to hate just as much. Abhor what is... uh, Love without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil. Now, some of your translations may say hate there. Hate's not strong enough. I mean, there are a couple of words that you can translate from Greek into hate. One of them is a lesser form of hate. The other was an extreme form of hate. This is the extreme form. This is not just hating something. This is loathing something. This is abhorring something. Not just disliking it. It's hating it to the utmost. The Greek word here too that very often is translated as cling or whatever really might be better understood is sticking to not clinging to but being something being stick to like glue cling or be glued to what is good so are we Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, this is where Paul uses an entirely different Greek word. This is uh, Philadelphia. Brotherly love. So are we devoted to each other? I'd say we are. really believe that. Springs Presbyterian is not a large church. Just isn't. We never have been. Some miracle happens, maybe we will be one of these days. 
But at the same time, I really believe that Springs Presbyterian Church is special. I do. I think the people here really do care about, care about each other. I think the people here really are ministering to one another. I think there are people in this room that are closer to other people in this room than they've ever been to other people in their whole lifetime. They feel comfortable here. They're at home here. Because it's family. I have one brother, his name is Dwayne. Some of you know him, Lud Lucy knowing, Riley and Nancy knowing, Lindsay and Justin knowing, some people know him. He's older than I am. Uh, he actually was a member at Springs Presbyterian Church for a time years ago when we were still meeting down at community, community center. He was a member here, so some of you may remember him from that. But he's the only blood brother that I have. I have two sisters and I have one brother. But my brother is also a Christian. Which makes my relationship with him very different than it would be otherwise. It makes my relationship with him even more special than it would be otherwise. Because we're not bound together just by a common mother and father. We're bound together by Christ Jesus. So we not only have Philadelphia for each other, we also have agape love for each other. And I know that some of you have that same relationship with spouses, or not with spouses, with siblings. Some of you do have it. I'm hoping all of you have it with spouses. But really what Paul is saying here in this verse is this, is we have to. It's not a matter of maybe we will or perhaps we ought to or we should or something like that. But in fact, we must love what Christ loves and hate what Christ hates. You've probably heard at some time the phrase carnal Christian mentioned. It's, it's a, I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but it basically refers to, to people that we would consider to be Christians even though they don't really seem to live much like Christians. Would you, would you think that carnal Christianity would be a real issue in the United States today? <laughs> you bet your booties it is. Still, if you were walking down the street in Dunellen or even in Ocala or somewhere else and you stop people and you ask them what was their religious affiliation, they would still tell you Christianity. But the vast majority of them, you started probing into that to get some idea of what their understanding of that is, you would, it would blow your mind because they don't have a clue. 
There's a growing number of people in this world, it seems, and in this culture, it seems, who believe that you can claim Jesus and live your life as if he doesn't exist. No way, Jose. That person does not exist. There is no such thing as carnal Christianity. Carnal Christianity is not Christianity. It will not save anybody. Yeah, we're talking about maybe people that were baptized. How often do you ask someone where you're a believer? Yeah, I was baptized when I was a baby. I was baptized when I was 10 years old. But you look at their life, and their life looks just like the average unbeliever. The way they spend their money, the things that they do, what comes out of their mouth, the things that they, they, they attend, the sorts of people they hang around with. Jesus talks about the narrow gate and the broad road. He doesn't say the broad road and the narrow gate. He doesn't say the opposite. Being a Christian means being different. Not in an abrasive way. But in a way that really challenges people to come to the idea that you must know something. I really don't. You need to understand that's where I was. I, mean, I had all kinds of people when I was growing up that you know, claimed to be Christians and this, that, and the other. And to be honest with you, for the most part, I didn't see many of them living what I would consider to be much of a Christian life. They were not living Christ-like lives. They were living a life that looked very much like everybody else, going to church on Sunday maybe, every now and then, that kind of thing. But doing the same kind of things everybody else was doing, saying the thing, same kind of things everybody else was doing, I thought the Christians, for the most part, were just a bunch of hypocrites telling me to do something they didn't do themselves. That was my perspective on the vast majority of church people for a long time. Remember, Jesus painted the picture that being a Christian is being a servant. When you lead, not to lead like the world leads, but to lead as a servant leader. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. Just as Christ served, he calls us to service. To serve other people. And sometimes that means serving people in the church. Sometimes it means serving people on the outside of the church. How do we serve? Well, one of the ways that we serve is by using those spiritual gifts. It's how we serve the body of Christ. 
by utilizing to the utmost those spiritual gifts. Verse 11, let's just read a little bit. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality, so on and so on and so on. Those are action verbs. I guess all our verbs are actions, I guess. Deborah, is that right? <laughs> They're action words. They mean doing something. Doing. Are you diligent? Is there a real diligence in your Bible study? You have set time. You read your Bible every day or once a week or once a month or once every 10 years? Are you diligent in your Bible study? If you want to grow as a Christian, let me tell you something. It's not going to happen if you're not diligent in your study of the Word of God. It's just not going to happen. It will not happen apart from that. Do it. Don't talk about it. Do it. Don't think about it. Do it. Don't feel guilty because you don't. Do it. For the right reasons. Seriously, how many hours did you spend reading your Bible this week? How many minutes? Some of you, maybe seconds. Some of you probably haven't cracked the Bible one time since you were here last Sunday. Let me tell you, you're not going to grow. And if you're satisfied being there, you may be in deep weeds. How many days have you gone without eating in your lifetime? Eating food? Most time we wouldn't even think about that, right? But how many times have we go all day without thinking one moment about the bread that God gives us for our spirit? His words. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty here. I'm just trying to get you to lay hold of where you're at in reality. And let me tell you something. There are other people in this room that are getting all puffed up and proud right now because I'm very faithful in my Bible study. I have my quiet time absolutely every single day and nothing gets in my way of that. If there's a faithful person in this room, it's me. Let me tell you something. If that's you, you're in big trouble too. Because what you're reading obviously is not really sinking in very much. 
Anyway. You're going to get me laughing here, Evan. I hope you're thinking about these things. And I hope you're studying. I'm thankful that you're all here. And I'm thankful all these folks that are watching us online are here too. And, and all of that. And uh, the fact of the matter is we all, need to, we all need to be challenged constantly. You need to understand something. That when I'm challenging you, you know who I'm really challenging? Me. So anyway, we are going to stop there, and we will pick up with it next week. But again, you know, it's just this, and you've heard me say this in Sunday school over and over again, we're never to be satisfied where we are. If we get satisfied where we're at, we're not where we ought to be. The picture Scripture paints for us over and over is climbing higher, digging deeper. Not being satisfied where we're never being satisfied where we're at. But growing in Christ. And the more we grow in Christ, the more we live for Christ. And the more everyone around us will benefit from us. both our fellow believers and those who are unbelieving.